I wonder this morning, do you, do you have a favorite Bible verse? Maybe you've got a verse that you call a life verse. I, I don't really like that terminology myself, although I've heard it for years and years. Because uh, as Christians, we understand that the entirety of both the Old Testament and the New Testament are the Word of God. They are God's inspired words to us. We believe 2 Timothy 3.16 when it says that all Scripture is inspired by God, actually breathed out by God is the word there, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Um, We know, although we don't maybe know the book of Amos so well, it is just as much the Word of God as is Romans. The Gospel of John is inspired, but so is First Chronicles, even the first nine chapters, which are all genealogy. Uh, you and I, I hope along with me today, you believe that the whole Bible is true. And the whole Bible is not just true, it is for us. And because it is all God's Word, we are to be whole Bible Christians. We are not those who pick and choose which parts to believe, which parts to obey, which parts to focus upon. There are denominational gatherings this very weekend where they are debating whether or not to to throw under the bus um, a lot of what the Bible says about um, gender identity and and sexual morality and immorality and and marriage and... uh, I praise God that we are not having those debates here because we believe that the whole Bible is the Word of God and that it is not just the Word of God, it's not just inspired, but it is inerrant and it is authoritative and it is sufficient for us. So having a life verse, well, it's not necessarily a biblical thing, but but there are verses, sometimes a verse, maybe two verses, maybe a lot of verses that God will especially use in our lives. And, and God takes a specific fragment of this vast word we have in front of us, and like the potter with his clay, he molds us into what he desires for us to be what, what Romans 8.29 says, conformed to the image of his son Jesus Christ. And he'll use verses like that. And, and God has used one particular verse to that effect in my life. And it's not any more special than any other verse, but but God has used it in me. God has used it for me. God has used it to shape my worldview, to, to mold how I think about my own life and everything about me and around me, biblically to give me a more vertical perspective uh, rather than a, a perspective that is centered on here and now and, and, and this world which is passing away. And that is really the thing that we are to do. If we believe that this is the Word of God, we must be thinking about who He is and living every bit of our lives with regard to who He is and what He has done and what He has promised us to do. So with that in mind, take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 31. 1 Corinthians 10.31. And 
We're going to read this verse that the Holy Spirit has used in me probably, you know, I guess going back to when I was my son's age, when I kind of discovered this verse and it just hit with me, and it has ever since. And you've probably heard me quote this many times, but today I want to talk about it with you. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 simply says this, rather than you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for 1 Corinthians 10.31. I thank you for all of your word, but I thank you for how you have used this verse in my life. How you have helped me realize how important this, this short, simple sentence is. How it is a command and it's not a suggestion. But today, Father, I pray that it won't be my words that penetrate hearts. Because that will go nowhere. I, I pray, Father, that you will speak. Your word is the truth. You are the one who sanctifies us by the truth. Your word is truth. And, and I pray, Father, that you will impress that truth on our hearts. And I thank you, Father, that you have gathered us here today that we might do this. And I pray you will glorify yourself among us as we have already talked of glory this morning and the concept of glory. I pray that you will impress it upon us even now because it is your Son that is worthy of the glory. We ask this in His name. Amen. Rather than you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. My youth group growing up had these things called spiritual journals. They were these basically these mini binders that my youth minister handed out to us. And we would carry them around with our Bibles and you know there were pages to write sermon notes and prayer requests and and whatever, and I would always put things on my cover. You know, when you're a teenager, you're decorating things, you know, you're personalizing things. I would put Bible verses and things on mine, and this is the one that stood out to me. 1 Corinthians 10.31. I memorized it, again, probably when I was my son's age, maybe before that even. But uh, we do need some context here, because when Paul wrote the words that we just read about halfway through the first century, he'd been dealing with a tough issue. The whole book of 1 Corinthians is dealing with very tough issues. You know, 1 Corinthians is a book written to a church in trouble. They're fighting over uh, factions within the church, who to follow, uh, who they like the most. They're fighting over some very egregious sin in the church. They're fighting over the Lord's Supper. They're fighting over... Gender, uh, marriage, and marriage and uh, gender issues in the church, gender roles, uh, the spiritual gifts. They're fighting over the gospel itself in chapter 15 and the resurrection. But in chapter 10, Paul is writing this as he's dealing with what do Christians do in situations that might be considered gray areas? Because we talk about how the Bible is inerrant and sufficient and authoritative, and I believe that with all my heart. It, it is fundamental to being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ that you believe this, that you understand this, and that you live according to that belief. But we are lying to you. I am lying to you if I tell you that the Bible has clear-cut answers for every single thing you will ever encounter. Such as, well, I don't want to give too many examples because I don't want to get into the weeds, but what there are gray areas. 
There are areas where Scripture is not specifically explicit. And specifically in, in his immediate context, the church in Corinth in the first century was dealing with a, a controversy over whether or not Christians should eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, why would this be a gray area? Well, because first of all, there are no such thing as false gods. They're really imaginary constructs that we've come up with, right? There's only one true God. Baal didn't really exist. Dagon did not really exist. Okay? The, the, the gods of the first century Roman Empire did not really exist, and yet people would offer sacrifices to these idols, and then the meat would be sold and, and eaten. So should Christians eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols? Well, on the one hand, a Christian understands that these aren't really gods at all. And there's a nice steak there that we could be eating, right? But on the other hand, that was sacrificed to some false god. And what does it look like to my non-Christian neighbor if I'm eating meat that's been sacrificed to false gods? Now... That's a whole issue, and I'm just using that as the example of a gray area because that's what this is written in. That's the context in which this is written. We can discuss that issue another time when we're talking more about 1 Corinthians 10. There's a lot more to that. What I want to get to is the, the big idea, though. You know, back in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, eight verses before, the key to this, really, to, to think through this, is all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So basically what that means is, and, and I'll sum up the whole eating meat sacrifice to idols debate with this. I'm allowed to do this, but is it profitable that I'm doing it? I'm allowed to do this, I'm not prohibited from doing it, but is it edifying others? You know, as Christians, we not only have to think about what's good for ourselves, we have to think about what's good for the guy or the gal beside us. And again, we can talk more about that at another time, but, but, but Christians are allowed to do many things. We are allowed to do many things in whatever culture we find ourselves in, whether it's the first century or the 21st. Christians are allowed to do many things, but that doesn't mean Christians should do everything that we are allowed to do. As disciples of Jesus, we have been commissioned to go into the world to make disciples. And to do that, we have to think about not only what is best for us, but about, about what is best for everybody, including those who don't know Christ. You and I have to consider how our words and our actions impact our Christian witness. We have to ask ourselves the question, how will what I do or say impact the life of the person who sees me or hears me doing it? What might they think of me, but more importantly, what might they think of Jesus if I do this or if I do that? If I say this, or if I say that. And in verse 31, Paul lays out this general principle to live by, and I think that this is really the golden rule of the Christian life. 
rather than you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You know, Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, and that's been called the golden rule. And I know that if we all practiced that, our lives and the, the lives of our, our churches would be so much healthier. But I believe there's an even higher golden rule. And it's do unto others falls under the umbrella of whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Everything falls under that. If you are doing that, if you are doing everything to the glory of God, quite simply, everything else falls into place. Do all to the glory of God. So it sounds simple enough. What does it mean, though? Well, first, the first word there, do, that's a command. The subject is you. You do. Paul was writing to the Christians in Corinth, but, but there's no question this applies to each and every one of us. So the subject here is me. The subject is you. It's us. You do. There is something for us to do. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. This is a command. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He has apostolic authority that has been given him by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so he is delivering to you and to me and to every believer a unilateral, universal command from Christ himself. And we've got to remember Jesus' title. Jesus, you know, Jesus does not give us suggestions for how to live a better life. He doesn't give us a menu with options to choose from. No, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And when we think of Lord, with that word in history, we think of titles of nobility, like medieval lords and things like that. That's not what this is. Lord means master. Lord means master. It's a description of who He is. So anytime we fail to obey Jesus' commands, it is as if we are directly repudiating His Lordship over our lives. And Actually, that's exactly what we're doing when we don't obey Jesus. We are, when, 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 we, when we sin, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Master, but when we sin, we're, we're acting as if that's not the case. We have become our own Lord in that moment. When we have that thought, when we say those words. And that means when Jesus says do, He's Lord. When Jesus says do, we must do. And through Paul here, Jesus is saying you do. But what is He saying you do? He's saying all. You do all. A-L-L. All. It's a little Greek word, pas, or, or panta that's translated all here. It's a word that we get the English word panorama from. One of the things, you know, we got these little supercomputers here, right? We call them phones. And, and, and one of the things I like best about mine that they, that they updated over the past few years is this ability to take a, a panoramic shot of, of something. I really like doing that. I don't do it a lot, but when I do, I'm always like, that's really cool. Um, getting a look at everything. Not just a partial view, but you know, getting a view of, of everything. I, I like doing that panoramic shot. So, so when Paul writes that we are to do all, he's saying that whatever 
he's talking about applies to everything. It applies to everything, to the entirety of our lives. Rather we eat or drink or whatever we do, the command encompasses, there's nothing it doesn't encompass. You do everything, all. All of our actions, all of our words, all of our motives, all of our innermost thoughts. There's nothing we can conceive of which is or or which would, would not be affected by the Apostle's command, the Lord's command. So what about the command? Do all to the glory of God. We are commanded in whatever we are doing to do everything to the glory of God. So the motivating question behind whatever we say or whatever we think or or whatever we do is not what do I want to do or what will make me feel the best or even what do I think I should do. Our motivation is will this bring the most glory to God? Or how will this bring glory to God? How can I glorify God the most with my life? With this decision I have to make? With what I have to say to this person? How can I most glorify God with every single decision I make every single day? And that might seem overwhelming to us. And to a degree it is. But if we take the Lordship of Christ seriously, we've got to remember that He's the Lord over all. Not just the the parts we want to give to Him. So, we have to ask questions about the the things we do with our time, the things we do with our money, the things we put into our bodies. Should I watch that show? Should I eat that food? Should I spend my money in this way? Should I listen to that song? Should I post this on Facebook, should I, I, I like or share this on social media? More important than the temporary satisfaction we get from some of the things in our world, things that are lawful and permissible, more important than any of that is our relationship with God and other people's need for Jesus Christ. What would glorify God the most is for the gospel witness of the church and for each person in the church to be rock solid in the world but not of the world. Beloved, what the Holy Spirit is telling us through Paul here is that freedom in life's gray areas, yes, we are free in Christ, but that freedom is grounded, maybe even superseded, by the fact that we are called out by God to be a holy people. Earlier today we were writing down things about God. Attributes of God. God is love. God is just. God is righteous. God is one and God is a trinity. But there's one attribute that supersedes all the other attributes. It's it's an attribute by which all the other attributes about God are set apart. Because guess what? I I love too. 
sometimes I can do righteous things too, but there's one attribute of God that, that makes all the other attributes about Him special, and it is that God is holy. I am not by nature holy. But God is holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God, it's the only thing said about God in triplicate in Scripture. Whether it be Isaiah 6 or Revelation, He is holy, holy, holy. His holiness is what makes His love different from ours. His, His holiness is what makes His justice always right. He is set apart. He is separate. And what the Holy Spirit is telling us is that we are called out by God to be a holy people. And rather than ask the question, can I do this? We have to ask the question, should I do this? Is watching that movie profitable? Is is posting that on Facebook and liking and sharing it profitable? Is it edifying others? Is it the best decision I can make for someone who's trying to live holy like God is holy? Will this bring the most glory to God? I think that if we were all honest with ourselves, and that includes me, we all fail to ask these questions probably the majority of the time. But if we understand Scripture and we understand what Paul says here to be authoritative from Christ, then this has to be the principle that governs the lives of those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and are, as we read earlier today, created... To, to do works which God has prepared for us beforehand. But to really understand how this impacts us, beloved, we need to understand better what glory is. Because we can sing the old hymns, glory to His name, to God be the glory. And at Christmas time, gloria in excelsis Deo. But what does glory really mean? I mean, have you ever really thought about that? How do we define glory? And, and exactly what are we talking about when we speak of the glory of God. Well, if you look up a definition, you find explanations like very great praise, honor or distinction, renown, resplendent beauty or magnificence. But, but just as all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that, those are helpful definitions, but they fall short of the full meaning of the glory of God. So we have to go to the Scriptures to figure out what the glory of God is all about. So turn to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. Back in in chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses asked God, show me your glory. And God puts him in the cleft of a rock, if you recall, and said He would cover Moses' eyes, then pass by and Moses could see his back. And that's what happened in Exodus 34. But oddly enough, we don't find any description of what Moses saw. All we get visually is that God, Yahweh, descended in a cloud and stood by Moses as he declared the name of Yahweh. But nothing we read tells us about what Moses saw. Instead, we read about what he heard. And let's look at what he heard. 
in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. You know, a lot of people today are looking for signs. People are, are, are wanting visible proofs of God's uh, presence, God's existence. But those people are misguided. You see, the glory of God was not about what Moses saw. It was about Yahweh revealing Himself through Word. The glory of God, beloved, is the totality of of who God is. The glory of God is is bound up in Him, in Himself. It is His weight. It is His gravity. It is His identity. The glory of God is honored by those who are made in His image when we treat God as a, a big God. When we treat Him with gravity, with with His weightiness. The glory of God is not just a a dictionary definition of praise and renown. It is the complete otherness of God. It, It is His magnificence in the sense that there is none like Him. Yahweh, Yahweh God, is alone perfectly compassionate. He alone is perfectly gracious. I can show grace to my children when they disobey but they will be the first to tell you I'm not perfectly gracious. Yahweh, though, is perfectly gracious. He is perfectly slow to anger. It doesn't mean He doesn't get angry. But He's perfectly slow to anger. He's perfectly abounding in loving kindness. He's perfectly love. He's perfectly justice. There is none like Him. And while all these attempts to define the glory of God might seem insufficient... That's because in the end they are. God is too great to be able to narrow down to a page in a dictionary. God is too magnificent to be quantified in mere human terms. So when we are commanded by God to do all, to do everything, whatever it is, to the glory of God, that has to impact every thought, every word, every action, in that we must always remember how great, how weighty, how glorious He is. In Psalm 24, Yahweh is described as Israel's King of glory. In Isaiah 6.3, the whole earth, not just Israel, but the whole earth is full of His glory. Israel, though, did enjoy a place of privilege with God. God calls them His chosen race, His kingdom of priests, His holy nation. But we know that Israel turned away from God, and and they did that again and again and again, until finally in Hosea uh, chapter 4, verse 7, Hosea declares the prophet that Israel's glory, which had been bound up in who God is, became shame. Their glory became shame. Because they chose their own ways. 
They chose their own idols. They chose to edify themselves. They chose to, to, to try to do what made them happy. What, what they felt they wanted to do. To put it simply, they repudiated the lordship of Yahweh. They repudiated the lordship of God. Now, if you read Hosea, you know that despite that, their future salvation will take place. Israel will be saved. Habakkuk 2.14 says the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. But as the Old Testament comes to an end, in Malachi, Israel is back in their land, but they're, they're without a king. They're without prospects for a king in the future. They're actually ruled by a Caesar hundreds, thousands of miles away. So the glory of Yahweh doesn't seem so glorious at the end of the Old Testament. And yet Malachi is not without hope because in the New Testament, Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Jesus is born. That's the announcement to the shepherds telling them of, of the glory of God that has been manifest among men. Jesus embodied the glory of God. In the first chapter of John, we're told, we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Hebrews, 4, uh, Hebrews 2, 7, is speaking of Jesus when it says, You have made Him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned Him with glory and honor and appointed Him over the works of your hands. So what the Bible tells us, quite simply, beloved, is that Jesus is the glory of God in human form. Jesus is the embodiment of the glory of God in a way Israel always failed to be. And, and He's the embodiment of the glory of God because He is God. God's glory cannot be counterfeit in something else. And the only way, by the way, that you and I can glorify God is if we have God in us. Not that we are God, but that the Spirit of God resides in us. And in Christ we saw the glory of God in a way man could see. Even still, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short, or, or even better, are in need of the glory of God. And that being the case, how are we any different from failed Israel? What remedy is there for you and I to experience the blessings of God when we are, according to Romans 5, enemies of God by nature? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3-6. through 6 says this, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants. For Jesus' sake, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness 
is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So what Paul's saying there is that the God of this world, and he's talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. People out here who don't know Christ cannot glorify God. They are spiritually incapable of glorifying God in any positive way. It was said earlier that even the righteous things we do are filthy rags. Right? There might be people who do good deeds, but apart from Christ Jesus, those good deeds are filthy rags, no matter what temporary benefit they might provide to others. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, but God has, for those whom He has saved, said, Light shall shine out of darkness, and we know the glory of God through Jesus Christ. The glory of God is revealed through the gospel. There's nothing else in all of history by which both the glory of His grace and the glory of His justice are so incredibly displayed. The gospel, Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus Christ, the glory of God among us, bore the full fury of the wrath of the Father against the sins of all those He would save, all those who would come to believe in Him, but so that they might not perish, what? Right? But, but have everlasting life. Now those who refuse to believe in Him, those who remain dead in their trespasses and sins, will experience the glory of His justice. And God's justice is a glorious thing. But those who repent of their sins, the glory of His grace. Now, we know that doesn't mean life becomes easy if we trust in Christ. On the contrary, just as Jesus experienced trials and pain and suffering and death, we experience trials and pain and suffering and death. But those whom God has saved persevere. Those whom God has saved persevere and receive an inheritance. And Peter talks about that inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1. He calls it imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. An inheritance that is an unfading crown of glory. Brothers and sisters, as those who have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, you and I, if you, if you believe with me this morning, you and I are going to receive an inheritance God has promised that is most of all the glorious presence of the Lord Himself. To do all to the glory of God... You must obey the gospel. You must repent and believe and follow Him because glory awaits. There's going to come a day where we don't have to worry about glorifying God anymore because it will will be what we do. It will just be what we do. We will be in His presence and we will be separated from the power of sin, even the presence of sin. But until then, we have 
1 Corinthians 10.31 to obey. Rather than you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the verse God has continued to impress upon me over and over again. It's a command I try very imperfectly to follow. But I've attempted to make it the theme of my life. And, and I wouldn't be doing it and preaching it if I didn't think we all needed to do that. Every part of our lives must be guided by this divine principle. God has given us command, do all to His glory. Do everything. And nothing falls outside of everything. Do everything with a view toward giving Him the maximum amount of glory. How can I praise Jesus Christ the most with what I'm thinking? With what I'm saying? With how I am dealing with this relationship in my life? With how I'm, I'm handling the stresses of my job? With how I'm using the things God has given me? How can I best Glorify Jesus. Do everything as consistent with the character of Christ as we can. And by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. I want to be a preacher who preaches the glory of God, and that's because Jesus is the embodiment of the glory of God. And His presence is in you if you trust in Him. It's what... Colossians 1.27 says it's the hope of glory. So I ask you, when you look at yourself, do people see Christ in you? Would an impartial and uh, uh, impartial, impartial, would an impartial observer conclude that you are Christ's and that He is yours? That you love the Lord Jesus only, or would they only be able to say maybe that you're a good person? Would they be able to say anything beyond he's a good guy, she's a good woman, she she's a good moral person? Remember, the Pharisees were largely immoral people. The rich young ruler had good morals. But they weren't willing to sacrifice everything for Christ. They weren't willing to be crucified with Christ. Is the glory of God big enough to us that we are willing to surrender our lives to Him? Will He consume our lives to the point that everything we think, say, and do is done through the lens of, is this what Jesus wants me to do? The following verses in chapter 10, going to the first verse of chapter 11, say this. Let me get back there. I'll repeat 31. Rather than you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but for the profit of the many, 
so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And I'll just close by asking, is the glory of God compelling you to live a life so that the many profit? Are you living for the glory of God that people might be saved? Is the glory of God the governing principle of your life? Are you an imitator of Christ? He is worthy of it. He is worthy of it. In the last book of the Bible, Jesus is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. It says, To Him who sits on the throne, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the elders in that chapter fell down and they worshipped. Moses saw the glory of God and he, he bowed down and he worshipped. He heard God's revelation of himself and, and that's what it says. And I read, I read those verses from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Verse 8 says he bowed down and worshipped. And I wonder how often the glory of God just causes us to, to bow down and worship. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, You are a big God, but all too often You aren't big enough to us. And it's not because of You, it's because of us. I pray, Father, that You might um, unblind our hearts and minds. Help us, Father, to live in light of the gospel of the glory of Your Son. Father, if there is anyone here who doesn't know You, we ask that even today You might cause them to see You for who You are and respond with faithful obedience to believe in Your Son and all You have done for us through Him. And Father, for, for the several of us here who do trust in Christ, Help us to trust You more. Help us to treasure You more. Help us to live considering the gravity of who You are. Your Word says it is, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. Help us to fear You, Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And just to extrapolate upon what Your Word says, Father, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of learning how to glorify You. Cause us by Your grace to know and believe that You are everything and that we must do everything with a view toward giving You praise. You are worthy. And we confess this and ask these things in the name of the One who is worthy, Jesus Christ. Amen.